Greetings, and welcome to another episode of Theologically Driven, a podcast for those who want to know God through His Word and have that knowledge drive their decisions. This podcast is brought to you by Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, a seminary devoted to exalting God by expounding His Word. You can learn more at dbts.edu. I'm Ben Edwards, Dean of Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, and in this episode we'll be discussing revivals. My guest this week is Dr. Mark Snowberger, Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics here at DBTS. Dr. Snowberger, thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. Now, we're talking about revivals in part because in the Christian world, there's a lot of discussion about revivals right now. There uh, was a chapel at Asbury uh, Seminary and in which uh, afterwards people stuck around, were praying and singing and have continued to do so for for weeks. And and others, many others have, have joined in and it seems like other schools are maybe having similar kinds of experiences and, and many are calling this a revival. Others are cautioning against that kind of language. And so I wanted to take a little bit of time to, to think about what is a revival? What should we think about a revival? So let's just begin there. What is a revival? Yeah, well, that's that's the $64,000 question because it's not really a biblical term per se. And with inflation, probably should be like $120,000 question. <laughs> Probably a lot more, but but but, uh, but yeah, it's not it's not a biblical term. Um, I mean, the the Bible does use the word revive on a few occasions, almost all in the all in the Old Testament. Uh, but it's a rather generic word. It's 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 the word hayah to to live or to make alive. It's used about as as often of reviving someone physically as it is reviving someone spiritually. Um, and uh, if you look in the New Testament, the word in, in many in many English translations doesn't even appear in the New Testament. Um, King James uses it twice, uh, but neither one with reference to what we talk about as a revival. One's about the resurrection of Christ, which I, I thought was kind of an interesting word to revive. Uh, but uh, but uh, also um, there's the reviving of sin in in struggling believers. Uh, there is there's one in in. Philippians 2, that's probably as close as we come, but it's still very far off. Anathalo is translated as revive to describe the blossoming of Christian concern, which led to them sending him a gift. But we really don't see anything that in in the Bible that speaks of a of, of the noun, the, a, a revival. I, I'll, let me just throw, throw two things out. There, there are there are actually two um, participial forms that show up in Ezra with reference to the exile, which could perhaps be stretched to uh, be the noun form. But but there, it's really not a biblical term. It's really a historical theological term. Um, and so most of those who are using the term revival come out of the Wesleyan holiness tradition, Pentecostal tradition, and that concept of revival, I think, rests on on two biblical theological pillars, if I may. First is Pentecost. There were several outpourings of the Spirit that took place in the book of Acts, and these, in Pentecostal thought, become normative of Christian experience. Since he did it once, we should expect him to do it uh, routinely, iteratively throughout the life of the church. But the other, if I may, uh, the, the other pillar of revival in this Wesleyan holiness tradition is the development of Methodism. And, and by that word, I'm not talking about the denomination per se, but, the, uh, but that word technically. A substantial section of English 
Speaking church, mostly Arminian in persuasion, developed a strategy of producing such revivals, a method for stimulating revival, and that's why they're called Methodists, because they developed a method. Charles Finney is well known for his method, uh, but probably the man by, by far most responsible for the rise and spread of American Methodism is the circuit-riding evangelist Francis Asbury. Uh, he was without question the rock star of the Methodist approach to spreading the Christian gospel. And no figure is more important than he in the history of American Methodism. And, and let's just say up, up front that it's not by accident that the contemporary events are happening at Asbury, a, a school named for Francis Asbury. The expectation of revival is sort of woven in to that theological tradition. It doesn't by itself it discredit what's happening, but it does raise red flags that something contrived may be occurring. Now, you mentioned that revival is a historical term. Another term that we see in history is awakening. In the American tradition, we have the first great awakening, the second great awakening. It, what is an awakening? Is that the same thing as a revival? Is it different from a revival? I, I think it's something of a generic and lesser term, if I may. Uh, the, the the awakening is just a, 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 a an uptick in interest in religious things. Um, the term was used to describe several waves of religious interest that took place from the 1730s up until the 1860s. Many historians identify four, but it's, 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 it's tremendously debated how many. Most of these are in the English-speaking world. Um, the first of the awakenings, the Great Awakening, started in uh, by common consensus around 1732-ish. Um, and this is before John Wesley's even converted. So he's converted in 1738. So, uh, so this was not a Wesleyan kind of revival there. It took place firstly in churches that had succumbed over the course of years to dead orthodoxy. As modernism spread, spiritual disinterest grew. Um, this was not a large-scale rush of fervor that enveloped the area. It was a series of often disconnected events in churches and villages uh, throughout the region. Um, it really isn't for several years that it sort of coalesces into something bigger, and you have uh, major figures like uh, George Whitfield, for instance, uh, is connected then with some of the later stages of that. Edwards, of course, is a major voice as well. Uh, he oversaw two such outbreaks, one in his church and then later in Enfield, Connecticut. Um, and he had a, a particular concern about false revival. Um, he started out by writing a book, The Distinguishing Marks of the Work of the Spirit of God, Thoughts on the Revival in New England, two, two works in which he's trying to synthesize here uh, which, what elements of this awakening are valid and which ones are invalid. So this is, this is an old exercise that we're engaging in, trying to figure out uh, the, uh, the, 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 the work of God. Is it, is it a work of God or isn't it? And he starts this. First John four one. Try the spirits, because that's 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 the, our that's that's what's requisite of us to discover whether or not it is. Now, one work that uh, is 
uh, good, good work in thinking through and then testing the spirits is from Ian Murray, Revivals and yes, Revivalism. Yes, yes. Uh, there's also an, an article in our uh, Detroit Baptist Seminary Journal by our former professor of historical theology, uh, Dr. Gerald Priest, mm-hmm. who also uh, talks about distinguishing between revivals and revivalism. Right. Uh, wh- what is the difference between those two? Why would we say revivals is, or revival is different from revivalism? Well, revivalism is contrived. It's, it's something that is produced uh, through a method. Okay, and so that's again, that's where I'm sort of pushing back at the Methodist approach to revival. Um, and, and again, we're, we're talking about historic theological terms, so we're we're, we're not necessarily saying <laughs> what's what's biblical. It's one of the concerns I have with some of the writings I've been seeing about this Asbury revival. People are very definite about what is a valid revival and what is an invalid revival, and and. The question of an uh, the, the idea of a revival is not so much a biblical concept. So, trying to be uh, dogmatic on what is valid and what is invalid is a difficult exercise, actually. But uh, uh, to me, that the the big concern is whether it's contrived um, and exaggerated, or whether it's something that is a simple work of God. Now, I, I've been in churches, and maybe you have. Maybe if you're listening to this podcast as well, you've been in churches in which you have a revival meeting scheduled yeah. at least once a year, maybe a couple of times a year. Um, what does that mean? How can what is, <laughs> how can you schedule a revival meeting? What's actually going on there? Okay, well now now you've opened up a, a second front here on this. Um, all within the the Methodist tradition. Uh, so John Wesley. Uh, held uh, that it was possible for believers to achieve a point of perfection. There, there, he, has, he has a series of grace. So there's prevenient grace, there's justifying grace, there's awakening grace, there is, there is, there is perfecting grace. And this perfecting grace, uh, he, he understood to occur usually right at the cusp of someone going to be with the Lord after a lifetime of struggle with sin. Um, and he understood it to be a permanent thing. So once you were perfected, you were perfected forever. Um, but within the Methodist tradition, there were many who were dissatisfied with the length of time it took to get to this perfected state. And so you have people like Phoebe Palmer who went on a quest for a shorter way. And I'm putting air quotes up and nobody can see them, right? So, um, so, so a shorter way. And she, and she discovered this shorter way in what, in, in what eventually developed into Keswick theology. So this, this idea that one could cultivate a crisis now and that, perpe- that, that precipitates a perfecting event early. So, and, and there would be a whole week. Once, once we get Keswick developed, there would be a week whereby you would go through this sequence where you could arrive at this crisis by Thursday. And, and, and so you could, you could receive the Holy Spirit. Um, sometimes it was called the baptism of the Spirit. Sometimes it was called dedication, consecration. But one of the things that stands out, I, there's a, I'm going somewhere with this. Uh, one of the things that sort of stands out is that if you get it when you're young, it's really hard to hold on to this perfection. And so this Keswick approach gave up on the permanence of perfection. 
Instead, they developed a second idea. Um, I believe we can we can point to Asa Mayan uh, coining the idea of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, before the 1850s, I think you can look, and, and for my dissertation work, I looked and looked and looked for, for this phrase anywhere in theology, theology textbooks, and I don't see it before Asa Mayan. And so he developed this idea of the filling of the Spirit. So you would get the initial perfecting work, this crisis once, but there would be a what uh, what William Evan Hopkins calls the leaking of the spirit. Okay, you would have the leaking of the spirit over the course of months, and then you'd need to get refilled. So the filling of the spirit would take place, and it was sort of settled on that you needed this about twice a year. So you would have revivals, usually in the spring and the fall in order to have to, to, to facilitate these fillings of the Holy Spirit. And so that's, that's where that tradition gets started, uh, coming out of, out of Methodism. And in order to and, and they would call these revivals. So they would be reviving this work that had been done previously through the filling of the Spirit. And there usually was a, a list of, of means whereby one could receive this filling of the Spirit. And so that's that's where this newer idea of revival uh, comes from. And not every church who, who has those revival meetings follows all of those means now. Some of it's just kind of yeah. tradition, right? It's just right, yeah. almost like, well, you know, every fall we have meetings and sometimes they're almost evangelistic and sometimes they're right. they're more about Christians getting right and and those kinds of things. Right. Um, but but if, if I think we'd say we can't necessarily compel, we can't manipulate, we can't find a certain method that's going to allow the spirit to do an extraordinary work. Um, should we pray for revival? Is that something we should want to see happening in our churches? Well, yeah, again, it comes down to the definition. Am I, am I praying for a Keswick type of revival? No, cause I, I don't, I don't hold to the tradition. I, I, do I do I do I pray even for a Methodist type revival? No, because I don't think it can be produced by means. Do I do I pray that there will be a, an awakening of interest in Christian principles? That there would be a an uptick in conversions uh, in in churches and in society at large? Of course, yes. Of course, of course, we can we we pray for that. Uh, whether we should pray for these events, you know, per, perhaps that's a that's something that could be debated. Now we started this discussion because right now there is an occurrence mm -hmm. happening that people are saying this is a revival. I don't want to necessarily try to evaluate at this point in time is what's happening a revival. Right, right. I want to take a step more broadly and say when something like this happens and people say this is a revival, is there a proper response that Christians should have? Is there a kind of a default? Should we immediately say, praise the Lord, this is great? Should we say, no, definitely not? Uh, should should we somewhere in between, maybe kind of hold it at arm's length or or how should we respond? Well, I think we should always be hopeful that a work of God is ongoing. Um, and so there's nothing wrong with, with hopefulness. At the same time, I think when we're trying to evaluate whether these spirits are of God, which is what John enjoins us to do, the the there's sort of a wait and see kind of approach here as well. I mean, we we determine whether this is valid by the lasting fruit, and so while while certainly we should have a hopefulness, 
I, 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 do, I do push back a little bit about the hard skepticism or even mockery that sometimes we see. Um, uh, at the same time, uh, we, we, we recognize we've been burned <laughs> over the years, and so there probably should be something of a wait and see, but with a hopefulness attached to it. Now, you've mentioned a few different times the, the call to test the spirits. A lot of people find that, that language almost uncomfortable. I mean, who, who are we to judge the work of the spirit? Uh, why would we do that? Why would we ever judge someone who's saying the spirit's at work here? Well, the, the question is, is whether it is the spirits at work or other spirits, Because as, as the verse goes on, because there are many false spirits that have gone out into the world. So there are, there are counterfeits. Uh, and uh, so we we have to recognize that 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 is the case, and we we need to make sure that that's not what's going on. And I think people inevitably would recognize that if if we were to talk about something outside of Christianity, let let's say there was a Hindu movement going on, and or there was a, a Muslim movement, and and Christians started saying, "Look, it's the work of God." I think most Christians would say, "Well, how could that be a work of God? Right, right. right. It, it can't. No, but it could be a spiritual work, just not." You know, it could be fallen spirits right. at play. Sure. But the reality, too, is just because someone names the name of Christ doesn't necessarily mean it's perfectly good now. That's right. We've still got to be testing and evaluating the spirits. And so if we're going to do that, how do we do that? And let's maybe begin by some, some cautions, some, some warnings about how we might do that poorly or how we might wrongly try to evaluate revivals or supposed works of the spirit. Okay. Well— one of, one of the things I've seen circulating quite a bit is the since it's not happening in a church, it's invalid. And I'd like to push back just a little bit against that. Um, I've got something of a mixed response. It's not as though God's regenerating work only in, occurs inside churches in response to formal preaching. A church is a go-and-tell organization. It anticipates conversions outside of its walls, and it shouldn't surprise us that awakenings could take place on the edges of church life. So in Christian camps, Christian schools, Christian homes, for that matter. Um, it doesn't bother me too much. What would bother me, and this is what could uh, ultimately discredit any, any uh, claim to awakening, is the absence of church involvement moving forward. Because the, the, the the Great Commission doesn't call on New Testament believers to merely affect decisions for Christ, much less undefined motions of passion. Uh, it calls us to offer careful instruction, baptize those who believe into local bodies, and in that setting, they receive further instruction and engage in sustained obedience over the course of time. In fact, in fact the, the conversion event is curiously suppressed. Uh, in, in many ways in the Great Commission. You know, the church takes center stage. So I think that's a, that's a huge, huge element there. So it doesn't necessarily need to start in the church, but it has, no. to, has to end there. It's, it does. If it's going to be a val if it's valid, yes. Yeah. Any other wrong ways to, to think about these things? Well, I think um, some have absolutely no patience for anything that is supernatural. And again, some have mocked it. But here's the thing. Cessationism as a stance, and I'm, a, I'm proudly in that tradition here, there's always an exception for regeneration. I can still hear Dr. McCune, who took a rather dim view of not only of miraculous gifts, but of miracles, period. He always stressed that there were moral miracles that were not part of the prohibition, right? Uh, indeed, by, by definition, regeneration is always and necessarily miraculous. We can't do anything to make it happen. It's like the wind, right? John 3. 
kicks up suddenly and mysteriously, and we can't start it, we can't stop it. And so we shouldn't be immediately skeptical of, much less mock the supernatural conversion of people, because that's the only kind of conversion there is. Yeah, it's almost disturbing in some ways if you have people who believe that God is all power, believe that God's at work in the world, believe that God's calling people to himself, and immediately assume, well, there's success there, so they can't be doing what's right. Right, right. You know, right. <laughs> you, know you kind of think, well, maybe God is doing a work there because this is the kind of work that he could potentially do. Right. Um, yeah, I think, too, uh, that oftentimes I see this, sort of a binary response to this, to this kind of a phenomenon, like it, like it must be an all or nothing kind of thing. Um, even if, even if at the end the Asbury fervor fizzles and proves fraudulent, the chances are high that at least some of those who were involved cultivate true religious affections and will live productive Christian lives in stable churches. I mean, that, that's always been true in the church, right? I mean, Billy Graham was 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 guilty of egregious compromises, but I've met dozens of people who've been converted under his ministry and brought into churches and and have lived productive and complete Christian lives. Uh, I, I think actually my own my own situation, um, I trace my own conversion to something of an emotionally charged event that got a little out of hand. It resulted in very little lasting fruit, but at least one genuine conversion occurred, and I'm, I'm very glad for that. So so I, I think that may be something that we can we can sort of yeah, put put something of a of a of a of a of a, a break on the on the criticisms that are going on because undoubtedly there are some who are who are converting and becoming right with right right with God uh, even if uh, at the end of the day we look back on this and say this 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 really wasn't a a valid work of the Holy Spirit in general yeah. And related to that, I think this is also a good reminder that just because God might use something doesn't necessarily mean we approve of everything that happened with right, it. Right, right, right. Um, because God always uses imperfect people and often uses very flawed people and very flawed means and methods and, and messages. And so just we can't look at the, the result and say, well, something good happened, so therefore it was good. Right. Um, but we also shouldn't say, well, a few bad things came out of us, so the whole thing was bad. Right. Um, now, there probably does come a point in time in which we'd say, you know what, it seems like it's almost all bad. Right. And and, and that point in time, I'd be very cautious to say, well, don't don't be too critical True. of it. To me, to me, it's almost like, you know, well, could you find good food in a dumpster? Well, maybe. But there's probably <laughs> a lot better places to look. And, and so why go there just because you might find something good? Um, and so that's, that's a balance to, to try to work through that. Any other thoughts on on either how maybe not to evaluate or maybe some some positives of this is this is the kind of things you should be looking for. These are the kinds of uh, attitudes or, or or criteria you should look at to see is this a work of God? Well, uh, the, again, again, it comes down to the response. The long, the long. Again, Dr. McCune talked about taking the long look. I mean, what is the what is what is the what is the long response? Of those who are involved and those who are affected uh, by this, um, James talks about marks of true religion and undefiled. It starts with a very quiet listening to the word. Uh, uh, 
being slow to speak and very quick to listen and listen and learn, uh, to uh, to to engage in in the fruits of the spirit uh, within within the body of Christ, and and so again again it's it's are, are the are those who have been affected by this. Uh, plugging in to to local churches and and participating in the life of the church. And if we could flesh out, you know, First John four has been mentioned a couple of different times. There's there's at least two tests that he gives there. Uh, one we might say is doctrinal fidelity. Um, right. Are there a lot of heretical things coming out of this? Are they believing the right things about Jesus, yes. about His Word? That's true. And then as well, uh, who's who's really buying into this? Is it? God's people who are following God, or is it a, a work that's largely appealing to the world? Yeah. Lost people are, are latching on to this like crazy, yeah, or, it, or, or are, are saved people latching yeah, on to It does that. seem like there's a lot of gawkers going <laughs> to, the, to the event too, and so we have to sort of sift through that. Yes. And again, it could be lost people are coming and being converted. Right. Right. That, that's where you're looking at the long-term fruit. Is this, is this a work that actually God's people listen to? Or is this a work that appeals to unregenerate people who ultimately do not need to change? Right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Snowberger, and hope this was a help to you as you uh, think about revivals. Uh, If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love for you to leave us a five-star rating. It makes it easier for others to discover us. You can find out more about Theologically Driven or Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary at dbts.edu. We look forward to our next time together. Until then, keep seeking the Lord.